News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. <laughs> FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel here with Professor Christina Greer. Greetings. Hello's and salutations. Um, we're going to be talking with Claudia Rizarria Ponte. I'm the Brooklyn reporter for the city, a nonprofit local news site. And Mazen Sadahmed, I'm a reporter for Documented at documentedny.com. About immigration, the ice raids, the weren't, for the most part, this weekend, and all the ones that are, mm-hmm. all the damn time. But before that, we need to talk for a minute here about Daniel Pantaleo and uh, Eric Garner. So the news, as, uh, as listeners know, is that the Justice Department, on a five-year clock, finally decided not to charge Daniel Pantaleo, the officer who choked Eric Gardner, who then died. And that means that the only possible remaining consequence now is this administrative trial that de Blasio and police commissioners, first Bill Braddon and then James O'Neill, managed to delay for mm-hmm. nearly five years, saying we have to wait for the uh, feds to finish. They didn't. They had the trial, but they haven't had a uh, verdict yet. Once there's a verdict, even that doesn't really matter because that's actually just a suggestion for the police commissioner to give whatever discipline he does or does not choose to. Right. So as of right now, Wednesday, Daniel Pantaleo is still a member of the NYPD. A modified still duty. collecting a check paid that's for right. by the citizens of New York and still un- eligible for his pension. That's right. And uh, Blood the- boiling right now. How about de Blasio putting out a press thing saying we've learned a lot over these five years and by the way, we wouldn't do the thing we've just spent five years doing and wait for the feds? Well, I mean he also pulled a Cuomo, which is like, can you believe this is happening? I can't I can't believe it. Like who who would let this go over five years? It's like you, homie. You did it. Like the same way every time Cuomo rides the subway, he's like, oh, my goodness. Or when he went to NYCHA and was like, can you believe the squalor? Who's in charge? It's like, you, Governor Cuomo, you're in charge. I mean, de Blasio essentially did the same thing when it came to Pantaleo. What I'm curious about is who on July 30th or 31st in Detroit, Michigan, will bring this up in the debates? Because Mayor Pete was questioned about his handling of a racialized incident that happened in South Bend when an African-American man was killed by the NYPD. Uh, And he had to answer for it in the debate. And I'm curious to see how de Blasio will answer this question, whether it comes from the moderators or from one of his opponents. And he better have a damn airtight answer, which I don't think he will. How can you have an airtight answer if you've let this drag on for five years, so much so that Eric Garner's daughter is now deceased and Mrs. Carr is left dealing with the murder of her son and the death of her grandson, all because of Daniel— Excuse me, granddaughter. Uh, all because of the actions of a Officer 27, Pantaleo. 27 years old. Mm-hmm. So it's just remarkable. And this is happening as uh, de Blasio has brought his son Dante onto the uh, presidential campaign, as I think Jeff May has first reported for The Times. Yeah. He was, um, I guess he's hoping to recreate the 2013 magic in a bottle, but we're not at that moment. So I don't, I don't understand how. But in 2014, how. after Eric Gardner was killed, he— tried to go back to that, and he started referring, which he had not done, to the talk that he'd given Dante. Very briefly, and he caught the wrath of the NYPD and, more importantly, the PBA, and he backed off that narrative really quickly. Literally, by the end of the year, went on a little wildcat strike, and we're not going to do a lot of the crime stuff. Right. In response, which was appalling. But this has all happened on de Blasio's watch. Also, de Blasio's legal department discovered a brand new interpretation of a 50-year-old civil service law 
right after Eric Garner's death that meant that police disciplinary records are secret. So we only know that Daniel Pantaleo had four confirmed civilian complaint review board complaints, confirmed ones, Mm -hmm. uh, because that was leaked along with a massive tranche of their data. We won't actually know technically the decision that O'Neill reaches. Uh, The NYPD will leak it. Well, shout out to Christina Karenga, who's been a guest on our show, who's done some fantastic reporting. And if you go through past episodes, she's talked with Alex Brooklyn, Victoria Bekempis, and myself and Harry about um, the result of this process will be secret. I mean, she's sitting in the courtroom every day uh, when these it's not a trial, right? She explained it's a series of evaluations of the situation, but we don't have to know the results. I mean, it's O'Neill dressed can— It's like a trial. Yeah. It's a retired judge, but it's an administrative hearing. In the same way, the chokeholds are not illegal. They're banned by right. NYPD policy. This trial is really an administrative departmental hearing. Right. And so whatever O'Neill decides, ultimately, we— as citizens and taxpayers of New York City are not necessarily guaranteed a right to know. And he can overrule the judge. The judge is actually more like a, a, like a suggester than a decider. Right. Well, I mean, I'm just curious to see how the, the mayor is going to answer for this five-year delay just because it just seems so egregious. And especially when you think about the three individuals who were even filming this this event with Eric Garner and Pantaleo. I mean, we know Orta, has, his life has been inextricably changed. He's currently in prison, right? Not jail, prison for, I think, four years now. And so for me, I think the frustrating thing is Eric Garner's family— For other charges, but he says that the yeah, department was gunning, gunning for, him, for him, so to speak, uh, from the moment he gave that video, sold that video, in fact, to the Daily News. Right. I mean— I buy that story. I mean, and it's also one of those things where we've had to wait five years for some sort of quote-unquote justice, which has not come. And I think the anger and frustration that so many New Yorkers have toward the mayor, because at various points, the mayor could have stepped in um, and has today, not. He could step in today and tell the commissioner what he wants done. So he hid behind the Justice Department. Now he's hiding behind his own police department Mm -hmm. to say he can't do anything. We have to let this process take place. And he's saying this as he apologizes. I'm sorry I took five years to let the federal process take place. Now I can't do anything until the NYPD process is complete. My hands are tied. Homie, you are the executive of New York City. Like if you wanted this done, it could have been done. And guess what? The NYPD and the unions, the police unions, they're never going to be your friend. They've already turned their backs on you. So, like, give up the ghost because now you've got two groups who don't like you, the police unions and now the citizens of New York who actually care about Eric Garner and his family. So it's like you're 0 for 2. So actually just have some sort of moral backbone and do the right thing, which is to intervene. You're the mayor of New York City. Act like it instead of palling around Iowa and New Hampshire for votes that you're not going to get. But here we are. Indeed. There's my rant for this Wednesday. I'm sorry. But I'm I'm definitely frustrated, Harry, as you can tell, just because it's like going to our podcast episode where we'll, we interview Manson and Claudia. There are just so many institutions that are evoking fear in the people who live in the city in this country. Unnecessarily, right? We've got ICE, who's like scaring the hell out of immigrants, documented and undocumented. You've got 
police interactions that scare the hell out of just people of color. I don't care what class you are because it is now very clearly seen. You can do things on camera and get away with it. And your elected officials will just sit there and give you the runaround and say, my hands are tied. It's like your hands actually aren't tied. You were tying your own hands, Bill de Blasio. And here we are five years later, almost to the day. There's a lot more to dig into there. Um, We need to talk about ICE. The New York Times, in an excellent editorial on Wednesday, asks, why should an officer like Officer Pantaleo remain on the force, diminishing the trust in New Yorkers? The Justice Department's delay is inexcusable. The city's deference to federal prosecutors and lack of urgency are offensive. And that Officer Pantaleo could remain on the force after everything seems unimaginable. But it's where we are. Imagine it. We've seen the video. You don't don't need to imagine it. It's true. It's true right now today. Speaking of unimaginable things, let's talk about the uh, state of uh, immigration enforcement in New York and uh, welcome in Mazen and Claudia. Yeah, to our very blue city and blue state. Mazen and Claudia, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Do you guys just want to give our listeners a sense of what's been happening around the city and what hasn't been happening over the last week, starting this, uh, this past weekend? Yeah, so early last week, there was a story from the Times that said that ICE was planning a nationwide sweep across 10 different cities, one of them being New York, in which they were going to arrest 2,000 people. All of these people were people that recently arrived in the U.S. and had missed their deportation hearings. So they were supposed to be targeted raids, and apparently, according to the Times, they were told that they were supposed to be a deterrent. And this is kind of building off of something that Trump tweeted in late June, I think, where he said that ICE raids that will round up millions of people were going to start in a week from now, and that didn't happen. So this was supposed to be the re-upping of this operation. So the city was pretty tense. Everybody was anticipating a massive operation that would take in a lot of different people. The advocates were going around giving Know Your Rights uh, tutorials. And in these targeted raids, a lot of other people get not so incidentally swept up often, right, when they do happen. Definitely. So that's that's a common occurrence. Um, a lot of times when ICE goes in for a targeted, quote-unquote, targeted arrest, they'll check the identifications of people that are there and arrest them also. And they explicitly said in the Times piece that they were intending to do that in this operation to arrest as many people. So it seemed like it was a, a fear-mongering tactic, a kind of like show of strength from ICE because tactically... It doesn't really make much sense if you want to arrest a bunch of people to tell them in advance that we're going to come and arrest you. So it appeared from the outside that it was really a kind of press campaign to strike fear in people and to to let everybody know that this could happen. And explicitly, the, the DHS has said that this was supposed to be a deterrent. This operation was structured as a deterrent so that people that came uh, across the border would know that they could be deported very quickly. You know, how successful or effective that is as a campaign is debatable, but that that is what they said that they were intending to do. And I guess that was like the f- striking the fear in people in advance was, was why they did that. So Menzen, can you explain to our listeners... You know, since so many immigrant families are mixed status households where someone's documented and someone else is undocumented, how is it legal for them to go in and in these sweeps take someone who's 
properly documented as well. So ICE is like a federal enforcement agency is deeply problematic in a lot of ways. And I think that there have been a number of lawsuits against ICE for arresting U.S. citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was a good op-ed in the Times about this recently. And a lot of times people that are picked up incidentally in these cases are people who didn't have their documentation on them in that moment. And, you know, ICE has arrested them based on suspicion. So you could argue that the civil rights dispute out of that. But in that moment, I think ICE believes and operates under the pretense that it has the the authority to arrest anybody they believe is in the country illegally. And they have a targeted list of people. And sometimes there are people who are um, family members who ICE has targeted previously or wants to target. There was a case in Chicago, actually, where they arrested a woman who was here with DACA, went back to her house and arrested her parents, who they knew were undocumented. So, and they'd previously been targeting her parents and used her as a way to get to their parents. So I think that's kind of what they meant in terms of getting incidental arrests. But a lot of times there are people that who are U.S. citizens who also get swept up in this, and it often ends up in a civil rights lawsuit. But after that person has sometimes spent a considerable amount of time in detention. So what did and didn't happen around the city this weekend after Trump's tweet, this is coming, it's going to be millions, and then the Times reporting that, that look, these raids are here. Connie, were you in Brooklyn for the city over the weekend, I believe? Yes. And and what were you, what, what happened and what were you seeing there? There was a lot of action, especially in Sunset Park, which is where I was over the weekend. There were people just presenting in in their bodies and just showing up and resisting um, all the action going on around the ice over the weekend. A lot of flash Know Your Rights campaigns. There were a few in Sunset Park, I believe. There were some in the Bronx, all over the city. Um, And I think, in part, that was what made the raids unsuccessful for federal authorities. People knew their rights and were able to defend themselves and knew not to open the door, knew to open a judicial, to ask for a judicial warrant. A lot of resistance from people is what I saw over the weekend. And was there a tremendous ICE presence as this played out? Or or after the report that there was going to be very widespread raids, what did we actually see in terms of, uh, of this enforcement campaign over the weekend? So they failed to materialize. It didn't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, there were two reports of arrests on Saturday um, and that were, that were unsuccessful. I think one, no, three, sorry, two in Sunset Park and one in, in Harlem. And, and that, that touches on the, the Know Your Rights campaign, right, mm-hmm. with, with agents coming to the door and trying to represent themselves and get you to open the door and people saying, I, I do not need to, uh, to let you in. Yeah, and I think that's been one of the biggest stories that come out of this whole incident is the success of these Know Your Rights campaigns that have been going on for like a decade now of advocates getting out into different immigrant communities and telling people that, you know, what Claudia just said, that, you know, ICE can't come in unless they have a judicial warrant. And we saw that over the weekend. A lot of people were not letting ICE into the house. Also in the Times story on Sunday, they had a piece about... Um, a woman in New Jersey who didn't let ICE into her house in our story as well. And the arrest that took place in January, the family knew that they didn't have to let ICE into their home unless they had a judicial warrant. So so these big sweeps tend to get a lot of the attention, especially when there's pre-announcements from, say, the president mm-hmm. or, or the Times, you know, trying to uh, scoop ICE, as it were. But this sort of enforcement is happening continually. And you guys had a remarkable story that appeared uh, documented and at the city going into how this can play out for a family and what sanctuary New York 
does and doesn't provide. I'm hoping that you guys can can share a bit of that with our listeners who should go. And we'll have the link at FAQNYC to both sites. And um, <laughs> uh, but, but you can share some of that story and reporting on it. And this is separate from much larger sweeps or things that get national attention. And in the ordinary course of enforcement, this story about uh, AM, as he's called in the story from Honduras and his family. Definitely. So the story is about a family, AM and MF, um, are the two um, heads of the household. And we actually started out on this story because of another sweep, another raid that ICE was kind of chest thumping about that happened in January. Um, it was called Operation Crosscheck. So after that, after ICE does these activities, they'll often put out this kind of victorious press release saying we arrested so many people and we were wondering after the press release, so what happens to these people? They're kind of listed as this anonymous group with very little details about it. So we wanted to find a family that had been victims of a raid and follow them and see what the fallout for them was. And that's how we ended up speaking with AM and MF. But I should note that they weren't actually arrested in part of that operation, but they were arrested at a similar time period. Yeah. That operation that Mazen just mentioned happened over five days in January. I believe 114 people were detained over that five-day period in the ICE field office in New York, which covers New York City, Long Island, and the lower Hudson Valley. And it was a little over 2,000 nationwide from the DHS release I'm reading right now. It's a funny thing. Anyone in the press who's ever talked to DHS people, Department of Homeland Security, right? ICE is part of them. And for, for somewhat internal reasons, almost everyone else at DHS either is embarrassed by or straight up loathes ICE. And they're like, no, no, we're the good police right. who protect people. <laughs> they're the ones who are doing this, this, this other stuff. Just since generally, rightly or wrongly, like fighting terror, say, is, is fairly popular. And, um, you know, deporting people is it, and detaining them in those ways is often considerably more controversial. And there, there is an interesting internal tension there. But before I drift us off, can you take us through this story of Am and his family and how they got to the U.S., this experience they had here and what's happened with MF, the wife, and the rest of them since he has been detained? Definitely. And also, can you tell us how you all even had access to this sure. story? Because I'm always curious as to how journalists and these families in this precarious situation are even linked up in the first place. Absolutely. So a lot of our work is um, done through immigration attorneys. We often contact them whenever there's been a kind of big operation or if we'd like to speak to somebody who's been affected by, you know, if the arrest had taken place over the weekend and, and we wanted to find families who had gone through it to speak to them, we would have contacted immigration attorneys. So after the raid in January took place, I started reaching out to different attorneys and asking them if they had any clients who had been arrested or caught up on it. And Make the Road was actually representing this family and they introduced us. So the story of the family, I guess how they arrived in the US was all of them are from Honduras and AM in the 1990s was part of a elite investigative unit in the Honduran police that was rife with corruption. And... On multiple occasions, uh, he refused to take bribes, which left him in a very difficult place among his colleagues and among the local gangs that were there. And so difficult that he ended up f feeling that he had to flee the country. So in 
late 90s, I believe. He ended up leaving Honduras, going to Mexico first, and then coming to the U.S. and bouncing around the U.S. over many years. He lived in Texas for a while. I think he lived in Maryland for a while. Uh, he worked a lot of different jobs, and he was actually deported previously. And then he ended up in New York, living in Queens, and meeting his partner, MF. And they'd been in Queens for some time up until January of this year, when a particularly violent ICE arrest took place. About four in the morning, ICE agents showed up at uh, AM's door in Rigo Park, Queens, which is pretty common for ICE. A lot of their at-home arrests take place before sunrise, and they're usually in plain clothes. So five ICE agents showed up at the door, started banging on the door, announced themselves as ICE agents, and... As they told us, they knew their rights and knew that they didn't have to open the door unless a judicial warrant was presented. But they wouldn't need one. According to AM, they banged on the door so hard that the screws fell off the handle and they burst into the house, pinned him up against the couch and pointed a gun at him. And as he was getting handcuffed, his young daughter walked out and saw him getting arrested. And him being detained, he went to Essex County after that, set off uh, a chain of events in their lives, which is what we document in the story. What's happening with his partner, MF, now um, as he's uh, as he, I believe, is, is, is still detained and is having like sci-fi video conferences with judges while this gets figured out. What is she doing? Like, where does this leave her? So um, as noted in the story, both MF and um, their seven-year-old daughter applied for asylum, and that asylum application was right. denied. Um, they're appealing um, their asylum case, um, and they've been notified that they have to vacate their home by August 20th. Um, the judge gave them about, I believe, six weeks, because the decision was made in early July, um, to leave the home and find a new place to live. Is that related directly to the immigration issues or is that strictly a civil issue? You mean the fact that she can't pay the rent? I mean, she they haven't been able to pay the rent since his attention. He was the breadwinner of the family. He worked in construction and at a restaurant. Um, she herself has worked some odd jobs, but it hasn't been enough to put food on the table and to pay the 1875 that their apartment costs a month. Um, and so they have racked up a considerable amount of debt. And um, as of August 20th, they, they have to leave their apartment and they don't ha really have a place to go yet. I'm still in contact with MF. Um, we talk almost every day. She was considering leaving with either a friend or to just find a place on her own. But it seems like for now she'll have to live with a friend who actually lives in New Jersey um, until she figures out her next steps. It seems like there are all these tenant-friendly things happening in the city to try to protect people and to try to prevent economic homelessness. Is much of that available to MF at this point? Unfortunately not, um, because both she and her daughter are undocumented. Um, there are certain welfare programs and grants and um, emergency housing relief that are available to U.S. citizens and to non-citizens, people with special status, green cards, um, I believe perhaps TPS recipients, um, but that unfortunately are not available to undocumented immigrants. And that is because they're federally funded. And although there are certain federally funded programs that are available to undocumented immigrants in certain states and in New York City, I mean, there's obviously talks right now about the driver's licenses and the Pell Grants. Um, unfortunately, in New York State and in New York City, 
that has not been the case with emergency housing grants and with other social welfare programs like Medicaid and food stamps. They aren't available to undocumented immigrants. They're only available to to non-citizens with special status like green cards and, and the like. So with our story, we really wanted to illustrate the fine line between rhetoric and reality in New York City in terms of like what exactly makes a sanctuary city. There's obviously a lot of protections in New York that aren't available in other cities and other states in the U.S., but there are certainly, um, as the story illustrates, just certain aid that um, our city's most vulnerable should be receiving. It's also noted in the story, and this is just widely known, that immigrants undocumented and with special status contribute about $9 billion to the country's tax base, and these services are not available to them. Um, and I, I bet... I. There are people who would say that that's unfair. Well, you know, this story was so touching, heartbreaking, infuriating all at once. But for me, the shadow of the story who wasn't present were elected officials. And, you know, people who actually make policy on the local, state, and even national levels. The silence of many elected officials was deliberate in the sense that if they're sent to... City Hall or Albany or Washington, D.C. to work on behalf of citizens, because this perception of scarce resources in America permeates so much of the discourse, I felt like so many good-meaning Democrats would draw a line somewhere, right, by saying, well, we support immigrants and undocumented immigrants, but are we supporting housing, like when you were talking about housing court and helping out with eviction status or giving some sort of supplemental income, things that we do for citizens, I thought that that would be a really complex argument for certain elected officials to make. Did you all, and have you all, A, spoken to any elected officials? And is that really a tension that some of them feel? Where, uh, yeah, when it comes down to, at the end of the day, when we're starting to talk about real hard-ass cash, right, certain citizens, many citizens, I might argue, are going to say, well, listen, I love immigrants too, Definitely want to support undocumented immigrants. But, like, we only have but so much money. Why would we be paying for their apartments? Why would we be paying for health care, Medicaid, whatever it may be? Has that conversation come up um, in some of your research conversations, um, stories that you've written? It hasn't. And um, I personally haven't had um, electeds reach out to me to say otherwise that like, oh, I'm actually pushing this bill or this is something that's on my mind or this is part of my agenda or refuting anything that was in the story. I I think that's a worthy question to ask. Are the elected officials in New York City, both in the state and in the council and certainly the mayor and the Office of Immigrant Affairs, like, are these people going to put their money where their mouth is in terms of just like helping um, immigrants, regardless of their status, keep their homes and access social welfare programs that many would argue should be available to them, that they're entitled to. And I think you could make the argument, and I haven't heard elected officials talk about this, that undocumented immigrants are like a boon for the city in terms of like an economic economic powerhouse, in terms of tax contributions, in terms of filling labor shortages in a number of different markets. And there was a lot of fanfare around the fact that de Blasio wants to extend um, health coverage to undocumented immigrants earlier this year. You know, right before he launched his presidential campaign, he made a big... um, brouhaha about the fact that he was doing that. Um, so it's an interesting question that we we didn't posit to them in this story, but it is an interesting question that it's like, well, okay, if you continuously acknowledge the economic um, 
benefit that New York City gets from undocumented immigrants. You know, you're very proud of everything that you advance to them. Like, how far are you willing to take this right, um, right. issue? And uh, um, that, yeah, that's a pertinent question that, I, I, yeah, I think we should we should advance to them. Well, I think it's also really frustrating because every time we talk about immigrants, especially undocumented immigrants, we always talk about their value to the economy. But reading the story that you all wrote, which we will have on the website, so please go to FAQ.NYC to read it. Um, this is, I mean, it shouldn't just be framed as this economic argument. I mean, that's one part of the story. But we are literally ripping apart families. Like a seven-year-old who sees her father getting taken away by five men in the middle of the night with guns um, and then all of the subsequent fallout, it can't just be framed as this economic argument. I mean, is that the best strategy? I mean, I, I feel like it should be a multi-pronged process to help people understand the long-term effects of these ice raids and the moment we're in right now. And I felt like that's what the story was trying to get at in a lot of other ways. Definitely, yeah. I think there is a kind of identity crisis among um, the Democratic Party of how best to talk about immigrants. Like, what is the most palatable way that we can speak about immigrants um, that won't alienate certain people? And I think that a lot of the rhetoric around the economic benefits of immigrants, I think a lot of politicians feel like that's a kind of irrefutable argument but if you start talking about just pure compassion and that like what are the responsibilities of the United States as a wealthy nation on earth that's a difficult argument I think for um, a lot of Democrats because they feel like they might alienate people that, that they want to capture but you have to start thinking about what is the moral responsibility of, of, of politicians in the nation. So this is a Republican who, who said something very bold um, Immigration and Naturalization Service, INS, as we called at the time, will do nothing with these names but terrorize people. And that was Rudy Giuliani in 1996 when he was mayor of this city. And he said last year about 1,000 people got deported here. There are about 400 or 450,000 names of people we could give and that he sued the federal government to not give. This actually happened, speaking of these social benefits, as a result of Bill Clinton's welfare uh, reform bill. Gets into sanctuary city territory very quickly because basically that required information about anyone receiving various public benefits to be transmitted in New York City to the feds. New York had had a policy that banned its employees from sharing information about undocumented immigrants who came to its attention, who needed benefits, who called the police. Rudy Giuliani obviously has, uh, has pivoted since, but it, it's sort of remarkable how, how the, the, these issues have circled around and around over the year. He also spent a lot of time, by the way, talking about the economic benefits um, of these immigrants and how damn good they were for, for New York. Right. Yeah, it is circuitous in nature. Like, I think every... Um, 10 years or so, there's like a huge national kind of identity crisis about what being of a nation of immigrants actually means and who's allowed to be here and who isn't allowed to be here. And INS's shift to the DHS, to kind of um, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement and USCIS, was basically a statement from the country that immigration is going to be a national security issue from now on and that no longer will we be looking at it from a, a purely compassionate lens. It's going to be security first and then um, 
you know. Well, it's never been a purely compassionate lens, but I do think that, that you have the shift from from civil enforcement sure, yeah. to criminal enforcement, and this comes at the same time and as part of the same repositioning in, in this war on terror, incidentally, where various crimes go from criminal acts, like is the FBI going to investigate, uh, you know, say the, the USS Cole or things like that, or is do we need some special new apparatus to deal with these things? And immigrants are part of this shift in this massive restructuring of the government, which is, I think, what progressive politicians are getting at when, for instance, they talk about banning ICE, right. which is Trump could very usefully shorthand to these, these people, the ones who should get out, don't want borders and they don't want any enforcement. But, but ICE is a very new phenomenon and like paradigm for understanding this. And as we've also seen with terror, once you build these giant bureaucracies with cabinet posts and uh, leaders and bureaucrats and all that, like they have to do stuff to justify their existence. And this is also how you end up with small town police forces with like, you know, yeah. awesome tanks and like really cool <laughs> shit. Like, like I watched G.I. Joe when I was a kid. You could rock that stuff. Right. Um, they had the fight on the Statue of Liberty in the G.I. Joe movie. It's incredible. Okay. <laughs> yeah, except for, you know, bring back like Tanks and Ferguson were also in Fallujah, right? <laughs> so it's like, and, you know, which is a larger question, should we should we be using this weaponry on people in Fallujah? But we damn sure know that it has no place in a town outside of St. Louis. Right. I mean, this is, you know, cause we don't see it in most neighborhoods. We just see it in certain communities. So... But it's this, there's this federal funding, and the funding creates the, the military apparatus. And one of the things that's happening now in the sanctuary city fight is um, this question of what funding the feds can or can't take away mm. if people are not being cooperative uh, with federal enforcement. And there's been a very mixed message here where the mayor, for instance, is like, you know, uh, uh, we're here for all New Yorkers, resist, resist. And then the head of the police unions and, and the head of the court officers union, they're like, we're not going to turn our back on other law enforcement people. You have these clerks around the, the state now who are suing the uh, the state about these uh, driver's licenses. And like, we can't do a thing that violates federal law. And you get into real like rubber meets the road stuff about who has to abide by who else's rules. And how independent a mayor or even a governor can be from the federal government and, like, what money they can take away from us in the course of that. Yeah, well, and, the, and the Trump administration had a, had a win recently in the federal courts around a DOJ grant to, to police departments in different municipalities around the country. From Clinton-era police bill yeah. and for community policing specifically. So the dissenting judge brings this up, right? That this was the Trump administration's first win here. And this has been an, a series of questions, right? But they're like, can we take money away if you don't have your, your officers cooperate with ICE? And this is why ICE guys are always wearing shirts that say like police, not like New York police or anything else, just, just like popo shirts. <laughs> and, and, you know, because they have federal authority and they are not getting a ton of cooperation here, clearly. So anyways, two judges said, yeah, that's totally cool. And the third judge says, look at the fucking law. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> it's like the law is specifically for community policing. Community policing is defined in statute and a, 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 as, as commonly understood, it's like the midnight basketball stuff that, that Republicans hate. And it is not meant to be carceral and in that register. And you're saying that if people don't get arrested, you can take away these specifically earmarked community funds? Like that doesn't that doesn't follow. There have been other decisions that went against the Trump administration elsewhere, but like I'm curious if this is going to keep rising up. It seems like we need some some ultimate resolution. There's also, sorry, last thing, a wonderful um 
Congress has these nerds who live in a basement and, and any member of Congress can ask them to report on stuff. And they put out these super cool, incredibly interesting reports. And they did one on what a sanctuary city is. Um, I have the, uh, the the PDF. I'll post this with the episode when I dig it up. But it's great. It's like seven pages and like we really don't quite know. <laughs> it's super duper complicated. Um, yeah. Some of this has to do with money and past that is really it's, it, it's not clear. And, and it's, it's clear when politicians here talk about it. Um, Alex says this is great. But, but Harry, like, like enough of you. <laughs> I'm like, where are we going? Come on. Let's bring it back. So – any closing words? So if you want more information on immigration in the city, check out Documented. We are a nonprofit newsroom ex- like exclusively dedicated to covering immigration in the New York area. What um, is the exact website? Documentedny.com. Um, we're a nonprofit. You can donate to us. You can support us if you're a foundation and you're interested in this work. Don't hesitate to reach out to us. Um, and check us out. And we have a newsletter that comes out three times a week also. Yeah. Um, and absolutely check out um, the city.nyc, alias the city, um, for all the latest on New York City news um, and all our news holding power to account. And you guys have a newsletter called The Scoop. Yes, we do. We have a newsletter called The Scoop. It comes out every morning at 6 a.m. except for Saturdays. Um, You can subscribe to our newsletter on our website. And if you subscribe and donate just a little bit each month, you get a really nice tote bag and a beautiful mug. And a pigeon pin. Oh, I didn't get the pigeon pin. Thank you all so much. And also, uh, besides documentedny.com, besides thecity.nyc, for people who want to get involved, like, Right away, is there a particular group or advocacy organization or website that you could direct them to immediately? Yeah, look, Make the Road and New York Immigration Coalition are the two biggest organizers in the city. And yeah, if you want to learn more about how ICE operates in New York, um, you can check out the Immigrant Defense Project. They do a lot of great research on ICE raids and ICE tactics in the city. So, you know, New York has a really robust immigration advocacy community, and um, there's a lot of people doing this work. So Make the Road, New York Immigration Coalition, Immigrant Defense Project are just three of, of a big group. Of a big group. Okay, and don't forget, listeners, like political tithing is real. Democracy is a living, breathing thing. So just because we've had it in the past doesn't mean that it's guaranteed in the future. So use that cocktail money from the summertime and put in at least 5, 10, 20 bucks per month to support an organization that's actually going to make this city more equitable. F-A-Q. Take him and put him in lockup. Hello. Hello. Victoria, welcome to In the Courts. Hey there. Uh, thanks for thanks for letting me uh, chat remotely. Now, what uh, what's going on health wise? Is everything okay? Yeah, yeah. I uh, something's a little funky with my eye. I don't know if if it's pink eye, but uh, as embarrassing as it is to say that, uh, I did fall asleep with my contact in a couple of days ago, and uh, I don't think that exactly boded well for um, eye health. Ah. Well, the funky eye will not stop our in the courts today. So and you can you can keep the uh, the pink eye thing in in the courts because you know PSA to everyone: if you fall asleep with your contact, then something gross will happen to your eyes. I'm glad that we're doing PSAs here about health. I think it's important. Well, um, then yeah. I'm going to give my professional medical opinion: preventive medicine or whatever. You can boil some boric acid, let it cool, and then put it in your eye. 
What? Yes, that's rat poison, but it does work for conjunctivitis, pink eye, and styes. It's an old Southern remedy. They don't really sell boric acid anymore because people make drugs with it. But if you can get your hands on some boric acid, it works. What kind of drugs can Yo, you make with boric acid? No, 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 no legal liability. Okay. <laughs> Listen to Chrissy at your own risk. <laughs> I've been using it for 41 years. Boric acid works. <laughs> what, what, how did you just turn into Greg Lasek? <laughs> I've been using it for 41 years. <laughs> okay, focus, Greer. All right, Epstein, all day, Victoria, go. So, Epstein, uh, the case, if you thought the case couldn't get any more mysterious and complicated and layered, it did on Monday. So, both Epstein's lawyers and prosecutors, and, of course, Epstein, appeared in court um, over his request to be released on bail before the trial, whenever that might be. And he wanted to be on house arrest, uh, offered to be surrounded by armed security, offered to put his house up, his Upper East Side mansion with a giant mortgage-backed bond. And that's that's what he uh, was requesting from the judge. And we're actually supposed to find out tomorrow morning, Thursday morning, whether or not his bail request is granted. But here's the interesting thing. We've, we've known about the arguments from prosecutors. He's a danger to the community. Uh, he's a significant risk of flight because he is rich AF. But what we found out in court on Monday was that Epstein had a passport in a locked safe, allegedly. And this passport had a photo of him, but a name that was not his. Ooh, an alias. Yeah, I know. The passport, moreover, was from a foreign country and listed his country residence as Saudi Arabia. And just to be very clear, uh, it was not a Saudi passport. It listed his the country where he lived as Saudi Arabia. I've seen some reports out there calling it a passport from Saudi Arabia. That is uh, not correct. Huh. Now, uh, the funny thing that we found out I mean, not funny, but just interesting detail we found out is in subsequent court papers, his lawyer claimed that the passport was from the early 80s when he was a younger man. It has long been expired. And get this, Epstein, according to his lawyers, just had the passport because he was a wealthy Jewish man doing a lot of travel in the Middle East and at the time hijacking and other dangerous things were prevalent, and so he did it as a safety precaution in case he encountered anyone who might, I guess, want to abduct him or some such. So that, can, that can is I, their contention. Can, can I yeah. quote here, just because if you haven't seen this, you might think Victoria is exaggerating or making some part of that up because it sounds bonkers. These are his attorneys explaining this passport not in his name, Epstein, an affluent member of the Jewish faith, acquired the passport in the 1980s when hijackings were prevalent in connection to Middle East travel. And it was intended, they say, only to be presented to potential kidnappers, hijackers, or terrorists. So he could pass as non-Jewish le- in, in case they would want right. to ki- kidnap him? Yes. I don't think that sounds, <clears throat> that sounds like a very complicated way to do that. Yeah. Straight, like very low probability uh, occurrence. It sounds like a whopper. Right. Do we know where the third passport is from? We know he has a U.S. passport, the Saudi passport, 
Do well, we, no, no, it's not a Saudi. It's not pass- a Saudi passport. It's, it's just a, lists his uh, uh, nationality, origin as a Saudi. As, do we know what what kind yeah. of passport it is? Yes, we do. His lawyers said it was an Austrian passport. An Austrian or, passport. Uh, that's it, like it called him a resident of Austria. Sound of music style. Mm. That's where. That's what the country of issue was listed as on the passport. You know, my question is. Where do you get this kind of passport? Is it like in the days of yore when you were in New York City, a college student wanted a fake ID, you'd go to a, a smoke shop somewhere in the village? That's what I, I was told was what one did in the past. I did not go to college in New York City, but that's what I am told by a reliable source. But what, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know where you get this kind of uh, travel document. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'll I'll have to check my secret, like, illegal fake passport sellers downtown. Adam, make this make sense, please. Make this make sense. I have, um, I have no idea. Well, we know, um, Victoria, is the, has Alan Dershowitz come up at all thus far? I mean, we know that he's at a quote-unquote conference in Israel right now. I have a feeling he will not be returning anytime soon because he hopped on the first thing smoking when Epstein was taken in. Has his name come up in any of this sort of preliminary hearing stuff? No, not in not in the preliminary hearings and not in the documents related to the criminal case. As you know, in some of the civil litigation, Alan Dershowitz's name had surfaced in one way or another. For example, he has advocated for some documents in an Epstein-related civil case to be unsealed. He believes that these documents might clear him of wrongdoing, alleged wrongdoing. Other At other times, his name has been floated as, you know, being involved with Epstein. But, um, no, his name has not come up in the official, you know, criminal proceeding. So that's, what's the uh, next... That's what we've got so far on Epstein, and... Tomorrow is um, going to be, well, I guess today at this point, very watershed development in the case. However, it goes. But, um, you know, Epstein is not the only thing going on in New York City this week. There's a good amount of important local cases. As we're recording this, El Chapo has been sentenced. Oh, El Chapo has been sentenced as we're recording this. And this may be the last time we ever physically see him. Is that what I'm... Told. He's been at ACC. Why do you sound like you're <clears throat> a thousand years old? I'm just keeping it so real. He's been at um, MCC uh, with our pals, Jeffrey Epstein, Paul Manafort, all such people. And now, Yo, MCC is lit right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the true definition of club fed. So, uh, yeah, as we record this, El Chapo has been sentenced to life in prison Ending, uh, I'm quoting the New York Times tweet here, ending his notorious criminal career. No, no, notorious. <laughs> so now to a local case that is, is getting a lot of local coverage, but not that much national coverage. Abel Sedino, hope I'm uh, pronouncing that right. Abel Sedino. I was there for one of the pre-trial hearings to see, uh, well, I'll tell you about that in a second. Abel Sedino has now been found guilty of manslaughter, and he has two felony counts against him. So the story of Abel Sedino is this. Two years ago, he brought a switchblade to school and, from what he says, had been bullied for many years and was being bullied that day. 
and got up in class when he feared for his life that someone was coming towards him and stabbed two of his classmates, one this of whom— This is the defense's position, right? This is the defense's position. This is what Abel asserts, right? Got it. And one of them died. On the other side, what the prosecution managed to show, he had confessed that day. And the pre-trial hearing I was at was to see whether that confession was admissible or not. So the story gets a little uh, strange. He, the defense had presented all this evidence or tried to present a bunch of arguments that the kids who were stabbed were consistently anti-gay, uh, anti-bisexual, and bullying this kid. What the prosecution managed to convince the judge in this, like, three-week bench trial was that Abel— his life was not in jeopardy. Um, they brought in, I think, 20 witnesses. Um, a bunch of the kids had said that Abel was the one that initiated the fight. However, there were a lot of, like, pencils and papers being thrown at him or in the classroom. It was a rowdy classroom. Now, his defense attorneys, Christopher Lynn and uh, Mr. Feldman, who's like, I think his it's like fireislanddefense.com. They took the case on pro bono the whole time wearing like gay pride pins and things like that. Now, who did they take the case on pro bono at the behest of? This is where it gets interesting. Ruben Diaz Sr. And Ruben Diaz Sr. is known for like not being the best when it comes to talking about LGBTQ community. And yet he had urged the defense attorneys, uh, according to the New York Times, to take this on bro pro bono. Mr. Feldman was incredibly combative with the judge, Michael A. Gross, um, in the Bronx. And you could see this sort of like overreaching defense. Towards the end, according to the Times, they presented a picture of the slain as like wearing a black do-rag and claiming that he was in a gang. So it was being presented that this gay kid was being bullied so bad that he just broke one day, and that was not accepted by the court. He gets sentenced on September 10th, so from this point on, he could, and this was made clear in the pretrial hearing I was at, that it would be possible for him to serve two 25-year sentences, um, for felony assault and manslaughter. So he could be looking at 50 years, 25 and 25, served consecutively. And that's, I think, his mother was crying in the courtroom. From when we spoke with the mother, she said she would be advocating for the full extent of the sentence. Interesting. Interesting. I'm, I'm really glad that you were able to tell us uh, more about this case. Mr. Feldman also called this the gay pride trial set up a lot of interesting dynamics. The Ruben Diaz Sr. thing is just weird and interesting because I know that Abel Sedino is a constituent and his whole family lives in his area of the Bronx. But it sets up a lot of different kind of things in play. It sets up between the defense attorneys this kind of difficulty in uh, the gay community dealing with making off the cuff. They've now been accused of like making racist remarks in the way they presented the defense. And like, there's a lot being thrown around about these two defense attorneys who are like older 
gay white men and the way they presented the slain boy um, as trying to assert that he was in a gang and things like that. Now, Mr. Feldman, I believe, or it was Christopher Lynn, one of the defense attorneys said that Abel Sedino had no support from the Hispanic community and that he could only, like, pretty much implying that he could only count on support from the gay community. And that was pretty prevalent in and during the trial. Interesting. And also, I mean, one of the elements, I mean, obviously not directly related to this case, but um, a couple of weeks ago, Governor Andrew Cuomo signed a bill that banned the gay and transatlantic defense, which it was a way that attorneys could argue either for an acquittal or for leniency sentencing, um, basically with an argument that, oh, I was so freaked out when I found out this person was gay or trans that I just, you know, snapped and committed a violent crime. I had to attack them. Well, this was kind of the opposite. Um, Exactly, yeah. yeah. The onus was on the defense to prove that um, Abel acted in self-defense. And they could not, you know— as we see with the verdict, they could not prove – it doesn't seem like they were able to prove with uh, witnesses and whatnot that Abel was bullied to the point of breaking that way. You know, whether that's true or not, whether it should be taken into consideration, it's complicated, right? Because you're talking about like a very young, now deceased boy and you're talking about in retrospect, if they brought kids in there, which they did – you know, how how do you testify? What if you didn't see any bullying? Now, I know that the Sedino family has, like, a case pending with the Board of Education trying to sue them for not taking care of or, like, watching over uh, or responding to the bullying correctly. So we'll see how that works out. Now, he gets sentenced on September 10th. He was a teenager. He used a switchblade. A lot depends on the sentencing, whether, like, it's the rest of this kid's life or a large portion of it. It's a very uh, dynamic case, especially in the Times currently. Well, I really want to see, you know, how this plays out in terms of sentencing. And I'm sure you will be there um, in keeping us posted on, you know, the next steps and what winds up happening. Yeah, I'll be there September 10th to find out what happens with the sentencing. All right, well, that's In the Courts with Victoria Bekempis. Thank you, Victoria. We will talk to you you. next week. And next week, I am sure I will have non-scary eyes. Try the boric acid. But disclaimer. Disclaimer. At your own risk. At your own risk. F-A-Q. FAQ is brought to you by a grant from Civil, a blockchain company reinventing the business of journalism. We recorded today at the McSilver Institute. That's NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at the Silver School of Social Work at NYU. A special shout out and thank you to our guest today, Menzin from Documented NY and Claudia from The City. We also want to thank Victoria Bekempis for In the Courts and as always, our executive producer, Alex Brooklyn, and our producer and mixer, Adam Kamara. If you don't know, now you know. Tune in to FAQ NYC for the facts.
Yeah, we are yeah. too. Great. Also, what is mi- what midnight basketball? Can you explain that phrase? Because it's awesome. Yeah. So I was looking at myself in the mirror in the bathroom in there. You know, I was washing my hands, and I was like, "Oh my God, it's it's I'm having an acid flashback." Midnight basketball. Midnight basketball. Midnight basketball. Midnight basketball.